Well, Heavenly Father, we do ask you to lead us. Thank you, Lord, that you care for us in such a way as to make yourself known to us, to give us the scripture, to give us the testimony of creation all around us, and even to speak to our hearts and to have a personal relationship with us. Lord, we know you've called us to a higher place, to a deeper place, and that you, you want to lead us forward. Um, and all you ask is that we would simply surrender to you, that we would let you lead. And so here today, Lord, we commit ourselves to that course. And as we look into what the Bible says about your nature and your character and the attributes that make you who you are, I pray that we would be swept up with a fresh sense of awe, that we would not just see you through an academic lens or a historical lens, but that we would see you for who you really are, uh, the present and reigning and all-powerful king of the universe. And Lord, it's in that spirit and with the humility that is appropriate to that that we come before you today, opening your word and asking you to teach us and to lead us. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Well, God is in fact awesome. You hadn't gotten that memo. And, um, and I thought it would be interesting before we get into what the scripture says um, to look at another awe-inspiring force of nature, earthquakes. Um, I don't know if you've ever lived through an earthquake. I lived through my first one right here in southwest Michigan back in 2015. I don't know if any of you felt it, but I was up in South Haven at the time, and my son was having a little doctor checkup or whatever, and we were sitting kind of in an office that was kind of close to the road, and there was this strange sensation that like a heavy truck was passing by. It just lasted a brief couple minutes, and uh, and then somebody said, hey, did you realize we just had an earthquake? And then it was on the news that, you know, if three point something, you know, light as far as earthquakes go, had actually come to Southwest Michigan. And I thought, wow, that's the first time I ever like knowingly felt that I was in an earthquake. Uh, Nothing rattled, nothing shook, nothing fell down. So in that respect, it was a little bit boring. I guess that's good. Uh, The the, the most powerful earthquake ever recorded was in 1960 in Chile, uh, where I think it got up to like 9.6. And if you know anything about the Richter scale, here's kind of a depiction of what the scale looks like. Uh, when people use those numbers, like a 3.0, you say it's, that's probably a light shaking of items, little damage, maybe. Uh, when you get up into the sevens and eights, that's where it starts to become you know, a global news event. When it's a nine, it's extraordinary. Like nines would almost never happen. And when they do, they would cause catastrophic dismay and damage uh, wherever they are. And, and as you look at this, uh, for those of you who like the science of it, the, the way it works is that every, every time the first number jumps up one, it's essentially 10 times the power of the previous. So uh, a five is 10 times as powerful as a four. A uh, nine is 10 times as powerful as an eight. And so as you get up into that, uh, that higher range, the devastation uh, gets you know pretty severe. And I was thinking about how a Richter scale is a way of sort of quantifying the power of an earthquake. That, you know, we're reaching for something that, I mean, it's kind of impossible. I mean, if if you are in a severe earthquake and buildings are falling and the world is getting turned upside down and things are catching on fire and there's mass devastation, like, it's not like a number really does it justice just to go, oh, hey, that was an 8.2. 
Um, no, I mean, this is like people's lives. I mean, this is, this is more power than you can comprehend. But the number just tries to grasp at it and at least give us a little bit of a definition of how big it was, how important it was. All right, so it kind of led me to this question. On your scale of awe, if there was such a scale, in your own heart, in your own soul, where does God register? Where did God register this week? So if you just rewind your week and say, okay, like I believe God is awesome, but was he awesome to me this week? Did I feel his presence? Was anything shaken up? Uh, was my soul sort of caught up in wonder? Did I, did I behold something that was way bigger than me, way bigger than the issues of this life or this world, and just, you know, was I just left breathless or speechless at how awesome God was? Or, um, this last week, was your sense of awe suppressed? When you think about, yeah, my relationship with God this week, like I kind of forgot about him for a couple of the days, and then like here I am at church going, oh yeah, I should have been thinking about God, but I didn't do a whole lot with him this week. Um, If you were putting a number on, if you were scaling out on the Richter scale, your awe of God, uh, where would it be? Thinking about if it's a, you know, a one or a two, where God is really kind of insignificant to you, then that, that would probably mean, you know, you, you sort of, God's not really a part of your daily life. Uh, maybe you take God's name in vain. Uh, you use God's name to express surprise or disgust with something, but that's about it. Like the, you, you mentioned God more in that context than you do in a serious context. Um, there's not a lot of awe. There's not a lot of respect for God in your life, if that's where you register. As you kind of climb up the scale, um, you know, if, if God is noteworthy to you, if God is is, is a high importance to you, then, you know, perhaps you, you opened the Bible. Perhaps you really thought about what does God want me to do. Maybe you spent some time in prayer. Um, what we want to do in this series is lift our gaze a little further and recognize that God's power, God's awesomeness, um, is, is so incomprehensible that it would deserve the highest number that we could give it. Um, and so when we think about what would it look like to, for our week to be captured so much or, or you know, enraptured so much with the power and presence of God that we said, wow, my level of awe this week was extraordinary. I couldn't get over what I was experiencing of God. I, I don't even have words to say what a big impact this made on my life, how much this shakes me to my very core that God is who he says he is. That's where we're going to begin. Saying, Lord, what would it look like for us to really treat you as an awesome God? Not just as one who's common or everyday or that we're used to hearing about, but to really take our breath away. So here's a premise that I believe. The most important, most exciting, the, the biggest thought your mind will ever conceive of is God. And so you might think that you're really important person. Maybe you have some really important thoughts. Maybe people look to you as some sort of an expert in whatever it is that you do, and that all might be meaningful. But by far, the most important, most innovative, the biggest thought you'll ever think is God, not anything else, not anything he's created. Uh, You could look up at the stars and just think about how vast the universe is. That's great, but that's not the biggest thought you could ever think. Uh, You could think about all the people on earth and all their hopes and dreams and all the potential that's out there and all the love and all the hate 
and, and, and it just feels like it boggles the mind, and it does. But that thought of all those people and all of what they represent still is like a drop in the bucket compared to thinking of God. And so if you haven't spent much time thinking about God, you're missing out on the purpose of your creation, and you're missing out on the most extraordinary part of what it means to be a human being. That God has allowed us to see a little bit of his glory. He's allowed us to have a relationship with him, and and we actually get to be a part of his family. That's mind-boggling. That that kind of an awesome God with all of this power would allow us to be a part of the story. So this day, today, we're going to think about God. And maybe for you, you've, you've exercised this part of your mind quite a bit. And so for you, this will be an important review. Uh, for others in the room, it might be the first time you think of God in these terms. And quite literally, in the next 15 minutes, you might think the biggest thought you've ever thought in your life. I hope that's the case uh, as we go forward. So here's how we're going to walk through our series. Uh, we have six different traits of God that, we've, uh, that, that, that are going to help call us to see him for who he really is. And today we're starting with infinity. That everything about God is infinite and everything about us is finite. Infinity just means unlimited. It means boundless. It means it's impossible to measure. And so when you think about something that, has, that, something that is in infinite, uh, you wouldn't be able to ever put it together. You wouldn't be able to sort of say, well, here is the scale for infinity. Um, it's impossible to measure. That's the very definition. Um, so I want you to think of this. Um, I found this picture that I really like of space, and I, I like a lot of space pictures. I'm kind of one of these people that surfs the NASA website. Um, and this is a picture that the Hubble Space Telescope captured of not stars, but galaxies far away. Um, In the wider picture that was taken, it took multiple years for the Hubble, as it would orbit the Earth and take like a little bit of the picture every day, uh, to come up with this image where they've counted more than 10,000 points of light that they believe are all galaxies in the picture. And of course, we know that we live in a galaxy that's incomprehensibly big, And all of these galaxies we're looking at are also incomprehensibly big. It would take you years and years, perhaps thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, just to get across that galaxy if you could travel at light speed. And here's a picture of thousands of those. Do you think that the enormity of the universe is maybe the closest thing that we can imagine in creation to something that's infinite? Okay. Now, if you really want to do the thought project on this, Um, You could say, does the universe that we know, like does the created universe have an ending? Or is it infinite? Okay, now here, let's let's bend our minds a little bit on this one. Um, Theologically, we would say, well, the universe can't be infinite because it's a created thing. God would be infinite and the universe is not. Okay, so I would agree with that. But, But here's how far out of our range understanding any of this is. Um, let's pretend that you could go the speed of light and you could start tomorrow and you could could look for the edge of the universe, the edge of everything that's been created. Um, If you're going the speed of light, that's 186,000 miles per second, assuming nothing's in your way, and you're speeding along through space at that rate. Um, Some scientists estimate at that rate, it would take you 45 billion years to get to the edge 
of what we think is the known universe. Okay, so let's pretend that you did that somehow. Like at that incredible rate of speed for that incredible length of time, you were cruising along and you finally reach the end of the universe. And there you are sitting in front of what? A wall that says you've reached the end of the universe. What would, you, what would your first question be? Man, what's on the other side of that wall, right? Um, and some people say, no, it's not like that. The universe is like some sort of big bubble. It's a big circle. So you kind of end up back where you started from. You say, well, great, even though that's really getting into the theoretical physics of things or whatever. Even if that was true, if the universe is some sort of big bubble that we're all in, what is your natural question about the bubble? Well, what's outside the bubble? Right? If you still, so the same, in the same breath, we would say, I can't comprehend something that's infinite. But then when we think it through, we say, well, I really, I don't even know how to comprehend the universe not being infinite. Like this is so, all, so far beyond our scope as a human being. It's so much bigger than what our minds can conceive. So with that in mind, it's important to recognize that when we try to define God, Comparing him with anything in creation is inadequate. You might even say it's disrespectful. So what if we were to say, you know what? The most infinite thing that we know of, or the thing that's closest to being infinite, is the sort of the spatial dimension of the universe. What would that be saying about God? Well, if he's truly infinite, that would be a very limited view of who God is. Even though it would blow our minds that would still not be an adequate description of God. It might be a little bit insulting because here God is an infinite being and we're saying, yeah, God is kind of like that finite, limited thing. And that's one of the, one of the temptations and one of the reasons that idolatry is so disparaged, is so wrong in the scripture is because when you make an idol, you're sort of limiting God and saying, here, God might, must look like this or God has qualities like this. And, and it's not just the fact that we're commanded not to have idols, it's the fact that it's disrespectful, it's, it's limiting, it's, it's such a low view of God compared to who he actually is. Um, so, God is infinite, we are finite, which means that we could spend our whole lifetime and many more lifetimes and even our whole eternity thinking about God and never reach the end of the thought process. It means that no matter how far we travel or how much we know or how big our minds get uh, or how many theological books we would ever read, we would still only have this sort of a scant outline of the whole picture. Um, God is a person who is so much bigger than anything else we could conceive of, it would take eternity to get to know him, which is essentially our purpose in life uh, and the track that we're on. Um, God is not caused, he is the cause. This kind of gets to that elementary school question that still would boggle the, the greatest minds of science. Uh, where did God come from, right? Um, that it's, it's hard for us to understand. It's impossible for us to understand the first cause, something that wasn't caused by something else. And so everything we know of, everything we can see, had a beginning, and it had a reason that it had a beginning. And so you could go even to the biggest thing or the oldest thing on earth and go, well, I kind of know where that came from. I know who created that. I know who named that. With God, it's not so. God is the first cause. And so all of us, I would imagine, have daydreamed about the day that we're in heaven and we say, all right, God, like I'm here. Now, there's one thing I've really been curious about. How does that work? How is it possible that you're uncaused? And maybe he'll be able to tell us and maybe he won't. I don't know. 
Um, But that is an amazing part of what this looks like and why we would say our view of God could never get big enough. Our sense of God's awesomeness could never be quantified fully. That's why when Moses asked God, what's your name? He gave this cryptic response. Remember at the burning bush? What did did God say? Tell them, I am that I am sent you. Moses is kind of like, wait, what? I am that I am. See, if something has a name, if someone has a name, it means someone named them. It means that there was a, someone before. Um, and so when, when someone asks for your name, when you give your name, you're acknowledging that you didn't predate your parents because your parents came up with that name. And you're acknowledging that you can be defined by something. Here God is saying, I am what I am. Um, some scholars think he, he, that the, the nuance there in the Hebrew could be saying, I will be what I will be. Like there's not, a, there's not a name, there's not a label you could attach to God and say, oh, he's just like that. Oh, no, that's God's name. Uh, because that would, that would mean that there's something else that kind of bestowed that upon him. But God didn't have anything bestowed upon him. He's everlasting, ever-present. He's eternal. He's, he's everything. He's infinite. Now, that expands our minds a little bit, right? Um, One person said, a mind expanded by a new idea can never return to its original dimensions. So maybe that happens for you as you think about God. I hope it does. Let's open the scripture and see just a few of the little tastes of this that the Bible gives us. Um, Almost like hints rather than the full picture. It's not like we open to a chapter of the Bible And one of the authors says, okay, I'm going to explain God to you now. Right at the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, God is an assumed first cause of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then all the way to Revelation 1, where around the throne, the angels are singing and there's all this power and glory. And the declaration is that this God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, there's, no, there, there's, there's nothing about this world, there's nothing about creation that's outside of his purpose, that's outside of who he is, that's bigger than him or equal to him or some sort of appear with him. Uh, he is everything. Say, wow, what do I do with that? What does that mean to me? Let's see how a couple Bible personalities interacted with this. We'll first turn to the Psalms and see as David was praying how he cried out to God in a time of need and why this sense of God's infinite power was a comfort to him. Psalm 102, verse 25. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing. You will change them like a garment and discard them. But you are always the same, and you will live forever. Then we can turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. Look down to verse 12. This is, you'll recognize some of these words because we sing some songs that reference Isaiah 40. Who else has has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth? Who has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? 
who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path to justice? No. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. All the wood in Lebanon's forests and all of Lebanon's animals would not be enough to make a burnt offering worthy of our God. The nations of the world are worth nothing to him. In his eyes they count for less than nothing, mere emptiness and froth. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? The answer, of course, is a rhetorical, well, there's nothing to which I could compare God. We've mentioned before along the way that if you were trying to make a comparison to God, ironically, the only thing in the universe that is said to be an image of God is what? You and me. Say, wow, I don't, I don't know if I deserve that kind of a title in the universe, and we probably don't. But God has given us that. He's given us the opportunity to be a part of his family, and in some small way, we are like him. We can, we can become more and more like him in his character, but this aspect of his infinity and his power, this is something that only he has and only he will ever have. Even Satan, even all the demons, even all of their power is still created power. It's still power that God bestowed. It's still opportunity that God allows. God has no peer. He has no equal. He's infinite. Now, the Apostle Paul stepped into kind of a unique situation in Acts 17 that I wanted to leave you with today as an example of how this impacts our thinking. Acts 17, verse 12, to verse 16. Paul was in the city of Athens. He was waiting for something else, and he had this opportunity to address the philosophers of Greece philosophers that would have spent all of their time talking about this very type of subject, only they didn't have God in the center, so they were looking for what type of humanity would be ideal, or how they could best quantify what they see in the universe, or, or what's the nature of reality, and they would have all this debate and all this endless discussion, discussion that continues today in philosophy classes all over every college campus, um, discussions that never really have an ending if you don't understand this first principle of theology. Here's what Paul says as he walks into that situation. Verse, jump, jump to verse 18. He says, he had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with strange ideas that he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now, the picture on the screen is actually a picture of where Paul said this, the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. So this is a picture from Greece, and Paul would have been up there somewhere in that rock outcropping, uh, surrounded by philosophers, by the most learned men of his time, um, sharing this message of the gospel. And here's how he connects it to their philosophy and helps them understand that there's something a lot bigger, a thought that's bigger than any thought they've ever had in their mind before. Verse 19, Then they came, took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. 
you are saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way, for I was walking along and saw your many shrines. And it was one of your altars that had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. The Greeks and the Romans, they had gods for everything you could think of. A God for war, a God for harvest, a God for plenty, a God for prosperity, a God for fertility. I mean, just, and so anytime you had a problem in any area of your life, you would sort of seek out the shrine that represented the God to that area, and you would offer a sacrifice or say some prayers. And here in the history of Athens, there had been an encounter, which you can read about some other time, where there was a healing and there was an amazing provision from an unknown God. So they set up an altar to an unknown God, and there it sat. No one knew what it meant. No one knew why it was there until Paul walks into town one day and says, ah, I see you have shrines all over the place. Let me tell you about that one. This unknown God is the one I want to proclaim to you, a God who is higher than all the other gods in your city. Verse 24, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent from their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he has proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak of the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. It's interesting to note that Dionysus was a member of this council, a member of all these wise gurus who would sit on top of that rock and pontificate about philosophy. He saw the light in that moment. Church history tells us that Dionysus Dionysus, uh, actually became the bishop of Athens and a leader among the churches in that region, which I think is exciting and interesting that even that seed, when Paul was sort of, if you remember, he wasn't even there to do that mission. He was waiting for something. He ended up in this discussion, and God used that uh, divine encounter uh, to set in motion some things that made a big difference in the history of that city. So, let's wrap this up with this question. I'm finite, so are you. So how do we begin seeking someone who is infinite? 
our whole theme this year is to seek God, to learn as much as we can about Him, to, to deepen and cultivate our relationship with Him. How do we do that if He's so far out of reach, if He's grander than the heavens, if, if the, the biggest things we even know to compare Him to are insulting to compare Him to? How, how can you and I have a personal relationship with Him? We'll dive into this a little bit more next week, but let me give you this teaser from John 1 where it says that the word became flesh. God himself became a man and showed us the glory of God. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus came not just as a testimony to God, not just as a messenger from God, but as the exact representation of God's being. The very character of God is represented by Jesus. And so God knew that in his infinity, There would be no way for us to have a personal relationship with him. There'd be no way for us to comprehend him to even begin that conversation. That's why he took a step out of infinity and into our finite world. He came as a baby and then was born and lived a life a lot like what you and I might live. Showed the way to joy and truth and perfection. Was nailed to the cross as a payment for our sins, and then rose from the dead to show his glory, to show the truth to the whole world. And just like Paul said to those Athenian philosophers, it's this God who is now interested in you. It is this God who is one day going to judge the whole world with justice, and the evidence of that is that there is a resurrection from the dead, and there is something a lot bigger than what you see in this time and this space. And all of us are a part of it. And so if the universe is some sort of a bubble, there will be a day when you're outside of it. If the universe does have an ending, the created universe, there is a day when you'll step past that barrier and you'll find out what else God has in store. That's the day that we want to be ready for. Uh, That's the most important day of our lives. So what's really awesome about God? You could make a list a mile long and it wouldn't be enough. Everything is awesome about God. But here's something that I know that I think of as awesome every day. You were created, and I was created, to have a relationship with him. Let's pray, and let's ask him to be near to our hearts as we consider who he is. Lord, we recognize this is only the beginning of an understanding of who you are, and it's a quest that we could be on throughout the rest of eternity, and joyfully so. This year, as a church family, we do want to seek you to have a sense of your majesty and awesome power in our hearts, that those concepts wouldn't just live in the psalms that we read or the music that we sing, but that it would actually be a representation of our heart, our life, that your awesome power would impact us the greatest level possible. Thank you, Lord, for loving us, for coming near to us, for being a part of our lives, even when we don't deserve any of this. And Lord, today we give you our worship, our praise, for being the awesome God that you are. In Jesus' name we pray together. All right, we'll see you next week. God bless you.